Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Turn in your Bibles to Micah, chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. If we could flash the slide. The title of the message this morning is, What Does God Want From Us? What does He want from us? And that's a pretty important question when it comes to faith and religion, is it seems like in every religion, in every faith system, there is a God who wants something from his people. The question is, what does this God want from his people, his creation? Now, the prophet Micah carried out his prophetic ministry in a very gloomy period, under very dark circumstances. You know, the leaders of the nation had led spiritually and, um, and politically the nation into ruin. And what was happening is they were so far from God as a nation that the Assyrians were, mount, they were massing, they were just mounting at the door, and overthrow of Israel, the hands of the Assyrians, was very, very close. If you know anything about the Assyrians of the ancient world, they were a, an especially cruel people. And when they captured another nation, they did not treat them in any kind of civilized manner, but they were extremely cruel. Their goal was to erase the memory of that nation from the earth and create just one great empire, the Assyrian Empire. And so the people's hearts were filled with dread, and there was a sense in which the time to make any change was already passed. This was going to happen. The consequence for their sin was coming, and so Micah's job was to play the role of what we call a covenant prosecutor. This idea that the people of Israel had entered into a promise, a covenant with God, much like we call marriage a covenant. It's a solemn, deep, deep promise in which both parties agree to play their part in order to make that relationship work. And God and Israel had entered into such a covenant as though God and a people group were being married to one another, And the people had dropped the ball on their side of the covenant. It'd be as if in a marriage, one side was faithful, one spouse is faithfully giving and providing and loving, and the other spouse is off running around with other people and just making a mess out of everything. And so it stands to reason that if you enter into a relationship like that with conditions, and it's a covenant, that when you break it, There should be some follow-through. There should be some response from one party to the other. And God raised up a prophet like Micah to say, he is now going to be like an attorney on my behalf, prosecuting this breach of contract between me and the people. You were meant to worship me, to love me, to obey me, and I would be your provider and your protector and your king. I would lead you in every aspect of your lives. I would give you a good future. This was a relationship. And so Micah's job was to remind the people they had breached that agreement. And the consequence was coming. But he was also raised up to say, there is a way to make this right again. It's not trivial. It's not simple. But it's possible that this sad chapter doesn't have to be the end of the story for the nation of Israel. And so he assembles this. There's this great stage set a courtroom drama type setting. 
And in fact, Micah says that God is calling the mountains and the hills to be the jury. In other words, he can't find anyone faithful on the earth, so creation and nature itself will serve as the witnesses and as the jury of this trial. And the language God uses, he says, I am, listen carefully to me, I am about to deliver an indictment against my people Israel. We had a deal, and they grievously broke that deal, and they need to hear the indictment that is being leveled against them. And so there's a very tense, very serious kind of atmosphere set up for us in this courtroom. What's amazing, though, is as the, 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 the text unfolds, you might be expecting to hear a long list of crimes, of uh, legal um, violations that they've committed, but instead, God takes a very decidedly um, personal, relational tone. As God makes his opening statement, listen to what he says to the people. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Instead of taking a legal stance, the tone God adopts is one of a person involved in a relationship where they have been betrayed by someone they loved and trusted. And he's asking, it's not a rhetorical question, what exactly did I do to you to make this happen? Every jilted lover, every cheated on spouse has wondered the same thing. I don't get it. What did I do wrong? It isn't a sad, that's our first response to the question, was it my fault? When someone else violates an agreement, breaks a relationship, and we wonder, is it my fault? Now, that's actually a very valid question to start with sometimes, because we do, it takes two to tango, but the question God is asking is, did I do something to you to drive you away from me? Now, at first blush, we sometimes have a ready answer for God when he asks that question. Sure, I have a reason. You're oppressive, God. You didn't follow through for me. You weren't there in a pinch. When I needed you most, where were you? And we might have a ready answer, but sometimes those answers we have are based on a distortion of the truth. We remember improperly what really happened. We see through the lens of pain, and it makes us rewrite history in an inaccurate way. And the reason we sometimes think we have a good reason for abandoning God is because we have processed wrongly what happened. And God says, if you're really honest about it, answer this question. Did I do something to push you away from me? And God is expecting in truth that the answer, whenever we're honest, is not really. Now, it's presumed in God's question, he says, how have I wearied you? Suggesting that the the protest of the people was this. This God is too demanding. We're exhausted. If he's going to be our king and we're going to worship him, he demands too much. We're actually pooped. Now, it's possible that the church might wear you out, but it's very unlikely that God will wear you out. But the complaint the people had was, God, it's all about these animals you're telling us to butcher in front of you, and and you're asking for all these tithes and offerings. We have needs, too. We've got to put the down payment on our vacation house, and and we need a new vacuum cleaner, the one we have just broken. You know, obviously, none of these things were actually going on back then, but I'm trying to put it in our day. And the, the point is, they're saying they felt like this faith, this relationship of following God was just too heavy a burden. And they longed for the days when they didn't know a God, when they were free to do whatever they wanted with their money, their time, their energy, their lives, their businesses. They longed for the freedom of the open road. And what was happening was because they were distorted in believing that following God was too difficult, they longed for the freedom of a godless life 
where no one expected anything of you. And so what they began to do in a very cowardly way was just sort of start walking slowly out of the room. Maybe they won't notice. You know, if you've been at a party where you can't stand it, it's boring, you don't care about the people yourself, and you're just like, I'm just going to slowly walk out. Maybe no one will notice I'm gone. They didn't actually have the courage to go, I don't like you, I don't like this place, I'm leaving, because then you're burning bridges. And so if you just disappear, you can say to people later, I don't know where you're looking, but I was there the whole time. That's what these people did. They ding-dong ditched God in a way. They, They just sort of slid right out, murmuring as they went, This God is too demanding. And God says, no, I think you've got it all wrong. In what way have I possibly worn you out? And it's not a rhetorical question. Look what what God says. Answer me. Don't give me your cheap little truisms, your parting shots. I want you to answer me. Search your heart. Dig deep. Come up with an answer that you can really be satisfied with, one that you would respect. Tell me the truth. Have I really pushed you so hard? And then what's amazing is God goes on to say, look, because let me give you a little history lesson. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember what was going on in Egypt? The people were slaves. No one alive today in this room has experienced true slavery, but it is not a pretty picture. Slavery is one of the ugliest permutations of human life that we have ever come up with. To turn another human being into property is as low as you can get. And that was their situation in Egypt. They remembered how bad it was and that God delivered them, but then they had forgotten that amazing deliverance. And so God brings them back to that, and he will do this again and again in the relationship. Remember Egypt and how I brought you out. It becomes one of the key points, the highlights of God's relationship with the people of Israel. And isn't that kind of the way it is with every relationship? There are certain events or places or times that stand as symbolic, very important moments in our relationship. I remember uh, sitting in the grass by a tree at Orchard Downs and sneaking my first kiss with Jeannie and thinking, I hope I have a future with this girl. I remember sitting on a park bench by Butler Lake in Libertyville and telling Jeannie for the first time I loved her. And she went, huh? Kind of hurt, but I knew in my heart that I meant it then. I remember getting down on one knee in the parking lot of a, of a red roof inn and asking her to marry me. Well, it was at the post office. And, and you know, there's these turning points. I, I didn't do one of those huge setups with, you know, in another city. I, I, it was just right to the point, you know. But these are turning points, and when I'm having difficulty in my marriage, when things are feeling a little distant, my mind goes back to those moments where I remembered why we did this in the first place. I remember thinking that I had won some secret prize. I can't believe no one else wants this girl. I got her. I can't believe. Why is she saying yes to me? And I remember feeling like the, the, the luckiest man in the world. And it's important that we return to those key moments, those places and events that anchor and define the relationship. And God uses Egypt and the deliverance constantly to do that because that was where the relationship was at the highest He was the knight in shining armor. They were the distressed people, and he magnificently rescued them. And they followed him just like they were following a pillar of cloud and and fire. And they were close, and there was gratitude, and it worked the way it was always supposed to work. And for God, that remained one of the fondest memories, and he keeps hearkening back to that. 
And then he says, remember Moses and Aaron and Miriam, the leaders I sent you? Remember when you had real leaders? Not the bozos running the show today, but real leaders. People you knew spoke for me, had real power from heaven, supernatural power. Remember those days when you felt like something was happening among us? He says, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. That's a very complicated little set of sentences to say, from the day you left Egypt to now, your history has been littered with examples of the saving acts of God. I have always been with you. I have rescued you when you got yourself into trouble. If anyone's going to be weary of this relationship, it should be God. Because in the relationship between human beings and God, though we have a cost to pay, it is nothing compared to the cost that God pays all the time for us. If anyone has the right to be sick of the relationship, to be worn out, it is God who has done all the heavy lifting in that relationship. You know, it's folly for us to think that we have walked so far, carried such heavy a load for God, that frankly we have a good excuse for bailing because this is a hard life. God's like, you should see what it's like to be me, sitting on the other end of this relationship, waiting for you to honor your end of it, to really come to me the way human beings were always meant to come to their creator. Frankly, it's lonely for God at the top. He's waiting for humanity to love him properly, to thank him honestly, to want to spend time with him. You know, when you have a little baby, they just kind of sit there, and it's so rewarding to hold a very small child. They just sit on your lap quietly. But, you know, they get to a certain age where they break your heart. They'll sit for about 30 seconds, and then they squirm out, and they go, I want to go somewhere else, just wherever you're not. And you're like, oh, man. I remember when you could just hold them, and now the most exciting things are away from me and out of my arms. Your parents know what I'm talking about, right? You know that feeling? It's so heartbreaking when they won't sit still with you, and God feels that way about us. And so he keeps remembering these key points in the history, and he says, you know what? Those are the days, and it can be like that again, and in fact, I want it to be like that again. But God knows the human heart so well, and he anticipates what our response will be to all this. Because the human response to most things that God wants, can you advance the slide for me? Just click. What's going on? Can you advance one more? There. Thank you. He's saying, with what shall I come before the Lord? This is God anticipating what the people are thinking. He's just saying, look, you're so far from me, I want to fix this. I want us to go back to the way it was. And if you're thinking in the context of marriage, this is a very understandable conversation. We used to be so close. Remember that? Remember when you looked at me and you had that faraway, googly-eyed look, and you're like, oh, I love you. And I want that back. We can get it back. But here's what the people instinctively thought God required from them. They said, right, so what shall I come before, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I even give my firstborn 
for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. This is the knee-jerk reaction of human beings, is that we assume what God wants is magnificent shows of humility, lying prostrate on the floor, prostrate on the floor, just groveling and begging God for mercy. All these, oh Lord, oh Lord, beating the chest, all for show. We think that's what God wants from us, bowing low, bringing bushels and bushels. You have to understand that these amounts being, being said here are extremely exaggerated. 10,000 rivers of oil. That's a way of saying, all right, God, if what you need is a payoff to restore this relationship, name your price. We're going to give you whatever it is you want. And isn't that such an offensive way to treat a relationship? I mean, can you imagine if you were a husband who cheated on your wife and your wife is willing to take your sorry butt back? She's saying, just come home. Let's patch this up. And you're like, what? Is it because of my paycheck? You want money? How much money do you want to get off my case? What will it take, woman? I want you to think about what that would do to that woman's heart. Because it's not about a paycheck or about making the rent or paying the bills. What's really at stake here is a relationship. God does not need your 10% of your income. Not that 10% is what we're giving, but, you know, on average, in America, we're giving an average between 1% to 3% of our income. So let's not even boast about tithing because that hasn't happened yet in America. But even if it were, do you really think God is a charity case who's waiting around for the 10% of your income so you can get some stuff done? Do you think that when you're gone, what he misses most is your offering? course not. If you leave this church, we're not going, what are we going to do? We're less, we're, we're light their offering now. Do you think that's what we miss about you when you take off? What we miss is you. That is what a relationship is. When you take off from God, when you sneak out of the room quietly, he doesn't go, where's my present? He says, what happened to my guest? My friend, where are you? Because what he really wanted was your presence, not your payoffs. They even go as far as to say, maybe what God really wants is to take our firstborn kid and just hack him to pieces and burn him on a fire. That'll show God how serious we are, how truly sorry we are. Maybe that's the ridiculous price this God is demanding of us. Listen to what God says to the prophet Jeremiah in response to this kind of thinking. He's incredulous as he talks to Jeremiah. These people have built pagan shrines to Baal, and there they burn their sons as sacrifices to Baal. I've never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. In certain parts of the world, you see the religious faithful cutting themselves and mutilating themselves and giving up all their money and living in in abject poverty, thinking this will please God. If there is a God, surely this is what he wants from us. And God says, what a bunch of foolish zealousness. Is that really what I asked of you? What really a person wants in relationship is time spent together. And so God makes his closing argument. He's made an opening statement. The people have made their rebuttal. And now God gives a closing argument. And this is the final word from the Lord. Look, it's not about rivers of oil and herds of animals 
or even the offensive idea of murdering your firstborn child, thinking that it's going to somehow please me. God's probably going, what am I, a volcano? You, want, you think what I want from you is to give me your children? What I want, I've already told you. It's so simple. And here's how he summarizes. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Now, you, the rest of this sentence, that does a very important setup. What does God want from us? How you understand the rest of that sentence is extremely important. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? I'm getting ready to close out here, but listen, the wrong way to understand that last word is to go, all right, let's see. We've got three things God wants from us. Checkbox number one, he wants justice. Checkbox number two, he wants mercy. Checkbox number three, he wants humility. So let's be really oriented towards justice stuff, and then let's really work hard at mercy stuff, and then let's really try to be humble. And when we see God, we'll just like that. Maybe that's what God wants. And he goes, no. The whole point he's trying to make is captured in that last phrase, walk humbly with God. He's not saying take on the the trappings of someone who's into justice. He's saying, no, I am justice. Do you know that human beings don't have a just bone in their body? You are greatly deluded if you think you care about justice because you are a righteous human being from your birth. That is simply not true. The worst criminals out there represent what humanity looks like devoid of God. All good things come from God, and there is no good thing in us. That's not me talking. That's the Bible testifying about the nature of humanity. And if you love justice, it's because God has placed that deposit in you. And to love justice is far more than hating evil. Now, I'm glad in our church we have some people who work in law enforcement. We even have someone working out of the DA's office. I thank God every day for people like you who are out there bringing people who are lawbreakers to justice. Society needs you. But I want you to understand at an interpersonal level and even at a societal level, doing justice is more than crusading against evil. It is doing what is fair and right in my neighbor's life proactively. It is doing what God would do for us. Notice also it says to love mercy. Not just do mercy, like, here, bum, here's five bucks. Don't say I never gave nothing to people like you and, and move on. It's not that. He's saying you need to love mercy. And do you see how those two things represent the sides of God that are on greatest display in the gospel? That God hates wickedness. He loves what is right. He is just. But if that's all he was, we'd all be dead people. But he loves mercy. And so his justice is balanced with his mercy by he himself paying the price. God didn't say, you should get what you deserve. Go to hell. He said, no, I want you, and there's no way you're going to pay the price adequately for yourself. And so God says to us, my mercy will balance my justice, and the good news is you still have hope with me. The answer to a life with God and a godly life is found walking humbly with God. In other words, these qualities of justice 
and mercy are not things in us that we bring out. You can't become more just by straining your justice muscle. I'm going to get more merciful. I'm going to really try. You can't become more of those things simply by your effort. Because these are qualities that don't reside indigenously in the human heart. They are reflective qualities. They are things we get the more we spend time with the person who really has those qualities. I mean, think about it in your life. Aren't there certain things you're passionate about that you could care less about before, but you met someone who was nuts about it, and it was infectious? They got you sick with their disease. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, let's let's face it. There are some people in this church who are nuts about climbing because of Peter Yu, right? That's an amazing contribution he's made in somebody's life to get you excited. You know who's done that in my life? My younger brother, Steve. I have borrowed at least 90% of my passions from my younger brother. Because I like everything a little. He likes certain peculiar things a lot. That's how it's always been. He goes, what's your favorite baseball team? I, I don't know, but I like all baseball teams. He's like, no, not me. I like the Cubs. I'll die for the Cubs. He's always been like that. And I've been jealous of his decisiveness and passion. So whether it's collecting comic books or doing digital photography or using Twitter or whatever, whatever it is, I can tell you so many of the things I'm passionate about, I got from him. That's because I'm in relationship with him. Because I deeply love him. I've grown to respect my younger brother. Guys, it's possible to actually look up to your younger siblings. And because I love him and know him, because I spend a great deal of time talking with him, relating to him, I instinctively trust that what he loves, I'm probably going to love. So if he says, you've got to check out this movie, I will spend $10 tomorrow watching the movie, and there's a 99% likelihood I'm going to be just as crazy about that film as he was because our minds are melding into one. And do you realize how impossible that kind of transformative influence is without time logged together? You know, I've been asking a lot of people at Harvest, hey, how's your time with God lately? Are you spending time with the Lord? And usually that question comes up because the reason we're talking in the first place is there's something stuck in their lives. There's some frustration, a spiritual plateau they've hit, and they're asking me, what can I do about this dead heart of mine? And my opening question will always be, listen, how's your time with God lately? And the minute I ask that question, I already get my answer because the eyes hit the floor, and the honest answer, and I appreciate honesty, the the honest answer most people are giving me today is, it's not that great. I'm just really not spending a lot of time with God. And in that honest answer is the very simple truth. We will never, listen to me, I'm not exaggerating. We will never become like God if we are not spending time with God. It doesn't matter how deeply you're convinced he's your boss and this is your tribe. If you are not engaging in relationship with this God today, that transformation inside of you will simply never happen. I'm finding this is a uniquely American or Western phenomenon that people have so many other options that finding time to spend with their maker is a challenge. 
in simpler cultures where there are fewer entertainments and diversions, it seems that this is a little easier to accomplish. But today we've got, let's think about it. How many ways can you watch TV programming? Netflix streaming, Hulu, ABC on your iPad. You can watch it in so many places. Cable TV, satellite TV. You can go to a sports bar down the street and watch it if you don't have ESPN at your house. I mean, our world in America is so filled with diversions, with things to sweep us away, that we have to fight for a moment or two with the God who saved us. And if that's where he's relegated in the priority structure of our lives, doesn't it, doesn't it uh, stand to reason that if God is that hard to spend time with, then he's probably not the person you're becoming like? And how are we going to become these people who are not just self-righteous jerks pointing our fingers at everyone who's worse than us? Oh, I'm into justice because you're awful. Well, what are we? See, you get a distorted view of justice and mercy and humility when you just hang out with your fellow man because you'll find people who are worse than you and you'll feel better about yourself. But you spend one hour in God's presence and you get, a, you get your eyeglasses put on real quick. You will see clearly who you are, who this world is, who God is, and you will change every single time you sit with God for just a little while. It amazes me that there are young men in this city willing to buy me a meal just to spend an hour picking my brain. I'm like, thanks for the free food, but that's slim pickings, man. And they want an hour with me so that I might influence them. It boggles my mind that that's being done. But imagine what that same amount of time spent with God will accomplish in your life. If someone could see value in an hour with me, it's hard for me to even say that without laughing. Imagine an hour with God. I promised that I would keep this, I promised myself and our interns last night that I would keep this message under half an hour and it is now 29 minutes and 45 seconds. So you all lose the bet. You owe me. But I'm not ending it just for that. Here's the thing about most sermons. The Lord brings you to a place of conviction, right? And what happens in a courtroom after you're convicted and sentenced? You go immediately to jail. You don't get to go home and gather your things. You go straight to the sentencing. What happens with us is after we're convicted, we re-enter the busyness of our world And we just forget. And so what I'm going to do for us today, if the heart of this message is, in order to become like God, you've got to spend time with God. And if the resounding, prevailing reason we're not doing that is we don't have time, I'm going to give you the gift of time. I'm going to yield 15 minutes of my talking time for you to spend some time with God. So that at least at the start of this new week, We can say we did it. We carved out a little bit of time with our maker. Because I know life is busy. And if you're in your 30s, man, you are in the busiest stage of your life. Everything demands your attention and time. And so let's take the next 15 minutes. If you haven't spent time with God in a while, it'll be like, you know, estranged lovers sitting at a table at Denny's. So nice weather, you know. Like, you don't know what to say. Let me give you some suggestions. You might want to spend some of this time just opening to a a passage of Scripture and just reading it. 
but read it with a listening heart. Is there something for me in this passage? God, you're sovereignly leading me to this, and you're going to give me something as I read. Listen. Another way you can spend this time is just talk to God in the same casual conversational language in which you talk to someone you know and love. You don't have to be all thee and thou and formal and eloquent. You just talk to God and go, hey, yesterday um, I was hanging out with someone and he said this and it really ticked me off, God. Am I right or am I wrong? Is there something you want me to change in my heart? That level of honesty, just talk to God. And obviously then, He's not interested in speech-making alone. Spend some time listening to God. That means you've got to be quiet for some of that time. Just be real still and listen. It's amazing when you do that. Sometimes a thought will jump into your mind so out of the blue, and often that's from God. And then lastly, you might want to write a few things down. If you get something really powerful from the Lord, write it down. Bring it into reality that way. And figure out how you're going to follow through on that. Now for the next 10 to 15 minutes, I'm going to release you to find a spot somewhere around here. It's a beautiful day. You could even go outside if you want to. Just don't go home just yet. Can I trust you? Just go out but not home. And spend that 15 minutes. When you hear the praise team come up and start the the singing for a closing song, start making your way back in and we'll wrap up together with one song and then we'll go home. All right? So let me pray for us, release you to a little bit of time with your Lord. <clears throat> Father, we believe that whether we know you or don't, whether we feel close to you or far away, we know that one of the best places for us to be is quiet and still in your presence. I pray, Lord, that even those who don't know you will somehow walk outside this building, smell the fresh air, see the sky, and begin sensing that you are not a figment of our imagination, but you are with us and you are very real. And in the next 15 minutes, pull our hearts magnetically towards yours and help us to have a treasured, precious start to our week. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.